0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Two items present themselves as we start today's program. One is the old saying that the more things change, the more they stay the same. A slightly more amusing item with which we might start is something we've started with before. I, I, I can't stop chuckling when I looked at it, the picture of a man grinning and holding up a beer stein <laughs> under the headline, man announces he will quit drinking by 2050. I have to laugh when I think of that and compare that to the efforts currently underway around the world to halt global warming. And we need to spend a considerable amount of time on today's program, I think, addressing the three-part PBS Frontline series titled The Power of Big Oil. This, dear listeners, is something I would consider a must-see. I've written emails to most of my friends saying, this is a must-see. Check it out. Now, to you, my dear listener, I cannot make such a blanket statement because I know we are often... Being aired on a non commercial radio station, that being KDVS in Davis. In such a venue, people are prohibited from directly calling someone to action. Although, you know, I, I'd be willing to bet that if the Oroville Dam had ruptured a few years back <laughs> and someone had gone on the air at KDVS and said, run for your lives, I think they, they'll let that one slide. But believe you me, we need to talk about the power of big oil. But unfortunately, we have a couple of other items that are even more topical and pressing. At the top of the list, the fact that Bong Bong Marcos, yes, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., has now been elected the president of the Philippines. Which means that the presidential palace will again see his mom, Imelda, flitting about and, I guess, presumably buying more shoes. Imelda and Ferdinand Sr. fled the country in disgrace back in 1986. They had been operating under martial law for, I think, 14 years and stealing everything that wasn't nailed down. In fact, according to John Oliver, and I have no reason to doubt this, the Marcos has made the Guinness Book of World Records as perpetrators of the largest theft of a country's resources. I don't know if they deserve that title, but they certainly, certainly have to be considered contenders. When they flew to Hawaii, where the United States gave them refuge, they had something like ten million dollars in cash and gold bars. But the estimates are that they sequestered away at least five to ten billion dollars straight from the Philippine economy. Oliver points out that a couple of the perks of being the newly elected president of the Philippines is that Bongbong Bong gets to call off the efforts of the government to reclaim those stolen funds. I guess at this point they've, they've gotten about half of it back, something like five billion dollars, but I'm pretty sure they're going to turn off the tap on that. The, uh, the Filipino government has been trying to collect uh, taxes on, on I presume, income, quote-unquote income, and, and penalties, which apparently currently runs to something like 3.9 billion dollars with a B, which I'm pretty sure they're not going to see a penny of. Uh, the truth of the matter is the, the Philippine Republic is, 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 is somewhat dysfunctional and, and always has been. The place is run by several hundred wealthy families, which tend to intermarry. Of course, studies done here in America a few generations ago would point out that we are analogous to the Philippines in that. A month or two ago, I went on a binge reading the books of the author Sterling Seagrave, which I find to be just complete page-turners, filled, as they are, with all sorts of data that's not generally known. Numbered among these volumes were The Marcos Dynasty, subtitled The Corruption of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos. Time magazine called it a merciless account of the Filipino dictator's rise and fall. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's not generally known, for example that Ferdinand Marcos, in his rise to power, personally assassinated a political rival, something for which he was tried for and convicted for, but wouldn't you know it, while in jail he (laughs) entered law school and doggone it, along the way there was an appeal and the whole case was thrown out of court. Ferdinand was apparently the illegitimate son of a Chinese merchant and the story of the Marcoses is interwoven with that of the overseas Chinese community, definitely with that of America. Well, when I say America, I mean RCIA. CIA, most notable among them, the legendary CIA operative Edward Lansdale, who prior to Marcos had made Senator Magsaysay the president of the Philippines. Turned out after Magsace died in a plane crash, uh, Lansdale's people eventually glommed on to Marcos. And the most fascinating aspect out of the Seagrave collection of books, and, 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 and certainly that of the Marcos dynasty in particular, is the fact that the Japanese military forces, after looting a great deal of Southeast Asia, took their ill-gotten gains to the Philippines and buried it we're talking about gold, gold bullion in very, very large quantities. It has been misnamed Yamashita's gold in some sources, and generally it denied that it exists at all. Seagrave documents in exquisite detail the fact that this is not a myth, and that large amounts of buried gold in the Philippine Islands had a lot to do with the Marcos dynasty. And we don't have time to really go into much of this today. But I do think I want to excerpt one little quote from this book, among many noteworthy quotes I might extract. Said Seagrave, after the sudden departure of Ferdinand and Isabella, many Filipinos thought everything was going to change. But in fact, little changed. The country had been so thoroughly looted that it had serious problems just feeding itself. Famine continued on Negros and other islands, and in Manila, the number of street beggars was up sharply. Washington was more interested in returning the Philippines to status quo than in promoting dramatic reforms. The status quo meant getting back to strongman rule as quickly as possible while paying elaborate homage to democratic principles. The talk about encouraging a healthy opposition and about correcting the feudal serfdom of the vast majority of Filipinos was just talk. The norm established in the islands under America was the rule of the elite, enforced by death squads. The democracy of the Ku Klux Klan. Cory Aquino, while apparently genuinely committed to land reform and correction of other long-standing abuses, was confronted by so many entrenched enemies of reform that she was forced to defer action indefinitely in order to concentrate on mere survival. So long as there was no genuine reform, whatever money was produced in the islands would continue to flee to safer places. Well, I'm sure at least some amount of it went to the Hawaiian Islands, and, and what do you know has winged its way back to Manila as we speak. We can predict with some confidence that bad things are going to take place in those islands under Bongbong's rule. But then under President Duterte, it hasn't exactly been a picnic now for the past six years. You have to feel for the people of the Philippines. By the way, although the story of uh, Edward Lansdale's manipulations of the Philippines is somewhat well-known, I think it took Sterling Seagrave to dig out the fact that what Lansdale was really interested in was all of that gold and what this huge reserve could do to, let's just say, foster relations between the American people and the Filipinos. And, it should be noted, the royal family of Japan, which evidently has managed to repatriate a considerable amount of this gold that they buried in World War II. And if we're going to talk about stupid people in in positions of power and leadership, and I guess we are, then we have to talk a little bit about Donald J. Trump. I had to laugh when I was watching MSNBC, and they were sort of reviewing the fact that probably the dumbest man ever to be president of the United States got to pick three of the nine Supreme Court justices. And as we're currently seeing, no good is coming from that. But I don't know whether to laugh or cry at the fact that uh, Donald Trump's defense secretary, a man he fired, Secretary Mark Esper, he fired him after the election when it seemed clear that Esper was not going to necessarily do the things that Donald Trump was prepared to do to hang on to power. I, I think you know, Esper's getting some criticism for the fact that he witnessed and heard some things that he he stayed mum about. But I think that he was probably presented with the choice of like, if I leave my post as secretary of defense... Trump's going to find somebody really bad who might do what he wants, which, which is what he set out to do. But Esper has a book out, and among the gems in the book are the following. Now, Esper had made headlines back in June of 2020 when he split with Trump over-invoking the Insurrection Act, which would have allowed the former president to send the military into states in response to protests and unrest. Trump had threatened earlier that if the turmoil wasn't quelled around the country to his satisfaction, he would send the military into states. Behind the scenes, as for alleges in his new book, Trump had some other ideas about how you might stop protests. In relationship to the George Floyd protests around the country, Trump asked, can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something? When Trump asked about deploying active duty or National Guard forces to quell protests, he was told that General Mark Miley had no commanding authority over the forces to which an angry Trump erupted and said, you're all effing losers. Esper wrote, this wasn't the first time I'd heard him use this language, but not with this much anger and never directed at people in the room with him, let alone toward Barr, Miley, and me. He repeated the foul insults again, this time directing his venom at the vice president as well, who sat quietly stone-faced in that chair at the far end of the semicircle closest to the Rose Garden. I never saw him yell at the vice president before, so this really caught my attention. The New York Times reports that elsewhere in the book, Esper claims that Trump asked him at least twice whether the military could shoot missiles into Mexico to destroy the drug labs. When Esper objected to the idea, he wrote that Trump said, We could just shoot some Patriot missiles and take out the labs quietly, and no one would know it was us. Esper quietly tried to explain to Trump that, in fact, everybody would know it was us. Esper apparently also details some of um, some of what went on around uh, Trump's policy advisor, Stephen Miller. Miller's the guy that once uh, proposed sending a quarter of a million troops to the southern border to circumvent a large group of migrants. After the raid that killed Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdidi in October of 2019, Esper wrote that Miller proposed securing al-Baghdidi's head, dipping it in pig's blood, and and parading it around to warn other terrorists. Esper said he thought that was not a good idea. And you know, we got to talk frontline, but I I need to break this up a little bit. Um, Why don't we delve at this point into the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for, well, I guess you could say probing Trump or you could say justice with the news that a special grand jury was selected this past week to investigate whether former President Trump and his GOP allies illegally tried to influence the 22 election in Georgia. In an unusual move, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis requested the special grand jury, citing its ability to issue subpoenas to witnesses who refused to cooperate. A regular grand jury would then be needed for indictments. In case you're unaware, Willis's investigations are examining the January 2021 phone call in which Trump pushed Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find enough votes for him to win the state, as well as Other calls made to other Georgia officials. If the special grand jury finds enough evidence in a year, in a year, they need a year for this. I'm just, I'm just reading the text in front of me. Willis said, "I'm going to bring an indictment. I don't care who it is." Well, wait, 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 stop, wait. We know who it is. It's the guy making the phone calls, asking them to manufacture votes that don't exist. Anyway, anyway, back off. Okay, no, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I'm glad this is going forward. It's good news. Good news item. On the other hand, uh, this past week was a bad week for souvenirs. An American family evidently caused a panic at Israel's airport in Tel Aviv when they arrived at security with an unexploded bombshell that one of their children had found in the Golan Heights. The family wanted to take the bomb home as a keepsake. Anyway, if if you should find such an item while you're traveling in a foreign country, dear listener, we would point out that they're called bombshells for a reason, and their status of being unexploded should be considered unexploded up till now. And it was surely an ugly week for tax advice, with the news that Sheriff Bob Johnson of Santa Rosa County, which is in Florida, Encouraged homeowners to shoot intruders, quote, to save taxpayers money, unquote. His reasoning was that if a suspect is shot rather than arrested, the chances of them reoffending after all that are zero. So we'd prefer that you actually do that. Defense attorneys have called his advice wildly irresponsible. Of course, we do have to point out, if if you extract the civil liberties part of this uh, of this discussion and just look at it from a, strictly from a taxpayer's point of view... He's got a point. But no, here at Radio Paradox, we do not advocate that you shoot intruders. We don't? Well, not unless they have it coming. Yay! Go ahead. do a few more. According to Forbes magazine, this is now a few weeks back, it was a good week for immigrants with the report that 92 immigrants hailing from 35 different countries have become billionaires in America. With a combined net worth of $711 billion, these foreign-born U.S. citizens account for 15% of all American billionaire wealth. On the other hand, there's been some really bad weeks lately for Russian oligarchs. Turns out that last week, two Russian oligarchs were found dead alongside with their wives and children. In eerily similar cases, more than 2,000 miles apart, Vladislav Avayev, the former vice president of Gazprom Bank, was found dead in his Moscow apartment. Investigators say he appeared to have shot his wife and daughter, then himself. The next day, the body of Sergei Prosenya, the former deputy chairman of the Russian gas firm Novatek, was discovered in a luxury holiday villa in Spain. His wife and teenage daughter found stabbed in their beds. Police believe Protzenya killed them in a fit of rage before hanging himself, but they did not find a suicide note or fingerprints on the weapon. A Ukrainian-American friend of mine sent me a, a summary of these oligarchs because it doesn't end here. I don't have the the clipping in front of me, but they're. A couple of other oligarchs have turned up stiff of late. We here at Radio Parallax strongly suspect these are not coincidences. And in what has to be described as an ugly week for commercialism, the San Diego Padres, a couple weeks back, became the first major league baseball team to announce a jersey patch sponsor. Yes, they signed a multi-year deal with Motorola, reportedly worth $10 million annually, to put a Motorola patch on their uniform. It is noted that European soccer club Manchester United makes $185 million annually through patches on its jerseys alone. And in a final item that is good or bad or ugly, depending upon how you want to look at it, we have the fact that the Taliban has banned opium poppy cultivation in Afghanistan. The Taliban is evidently hoping for an easing of international sanctions. It's been noted that if history is any guide, we should take them at their word when they say they're going to do this. When the Taliban last outlawed illicit drugs back in the year 2000, poppy cultivation plummeted by 90% in a single year. Of course, the bad and ugly part of this is that with a decrease in the opium supply coming out of Afghanistan, People who are dependent upon this type of drugs or like to use these type of drugs are going to use more of the synthetic opioid fentanyl, which is cheaper to produce, easier to conceal, and manufactured in quantity in China and shipped into the U.S. through drug channels south of the border. We spoke a few weeks back with uh, Dr. Pharmacy Howard McKinney about these fentalogs and how bloody dangerous they are and have to say that there's going to be a real downside to the cutting back on opium coming out of Afghanistan. All right, the remainder of this segment, we have to talk about the power of big oil. And we should note that this is going to tie in a bit with what Dan Bacher is going to tell us in uh, our second segment. We should note that a couple years back when the news surfaced that Exxon, it was Exxon then, not Exxon Mobil as it is now, Exxon hired a bunch of... Um, researchers back in the late 70s and early 80s to take a look at what the burning of fossil fuels was doing to the Earth's atmosphere. As reported on this program and elsewhere, the predictions into the future, taking us to about where we are now in time, were uncannily accurate when it came to estimating what the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere would be. I'm somewhat horrified to report that their estimates of how much the Earth would warm were, well, something of underestimates. Nevertheless, it was good science, it was accurate science, and it reliably told us where we would be going over the next four decades, starting in circa, you know, 1980. And wouldn't you know it, a lot of good science was done, and when the results came in, the executives at Exxon did not like what they were seeing. When it all started out, they were planning to move into alternate energy sources, things like solar, wind power, alternative energy, because it was sort of assumed that there would be some gearing down in the use of fossil fuels because of the problems they were looking into. But it really didn't take all that long for them to decide, you know what, we're going to take this in a different direction. I'd have to watch the whole series again, which, which I plan to do, by the way, to get the timing on this exact, but uh, it was something like a decade for the company to change gears. Not only change gears, but start defunding all of the research efforts. Not, not cutting back on the research efforts, plain old defunding them. And worse, in conjunction with that, hiring public relations firms to put forth the idea that it was all BS, that there was a great deal of uncertainty in the scientific community about what all these numbers meant. And of course, if we couldn't be certain there were going to be bad outcomes, why start spending money now to change our course of action? It is villainy of the highest order. There's just no other way to look at it. One of the prime villains that emerges in this piece is Lee Raymond. He was ExxonMobil's CEO back in the 90s when the efforts to portray global warming as a hoax were, were put into high gear. As I was watching this documentary unfold, I, 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 I had to hearken back to 1988 when James Hansen, NASA's leading atmospheric scientist, appeared before Congress and warned us that bad things were going to happen if we didn't change our ways. The predictions were that weather would become more variable that sea levels would rise, that temperatures would continue to rise. And frankly, that's just the way it was going to be. At the time in 1988, there was not the consensus there is today that this is what's going on. So there, it was easy to find people that were disputing the data, saying it wasn't certain enough, yada, yada, yada. But as the research continued and the weather patterns were made more evident, and study after study seemed to confirm the general thrust that was going on, the doubters fell away. Of course, they were still able to find a few hardcore people that would show up and say it was all bunk. In exactly, we would note the same fashion that the tobacco industry in the 1970s was able to find people to cast doubt on all of the findings that were continually emerging that cigarette smoke was harmful to human health. But it was kind of a shocker to this correspondent to realize that this research started in the late 1970s, that a pattern was emerging in the early 1980s sufficient for Hansen to be pretty certain about what he told Congress by 1988. One of the most disgusting parts of this documentary is to watch what happened when Bill Clinton became president in 1992 with Vice President Al Gore The leading advocate for doing something about global warming in the United States Senate became the vice president of the administration, and they pushed for a carbon tax. It was called something else, I forget what the exact term for it was, but it was a tax on increased carbon, and this got people like the Koch brothers mobilized to start the fight back, and the fight back turned out to be remarkably successful. And it's worth noting that this is the year 2022, and yet, by the end of the 1990s, it was really clear where this was going. The documentary refers to a Michael McCracken, who was part of the U.S. team of government scientists investigating the threat. He noted that from 1997 to 2002, I was in charge of helping make the first climate assessment on the U.S. and what would be the impacts. McCracken was then the senior scientist of the federally mandated U.S. Global Change Research Program. Keep in mind, this is the Clinton years. The assessment, released in 2000, warned of significant climate-related changes that will affect each one of us and predicted that without major intervention, temperatures in the U.S. would rise by 5 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit. That was spread out over the next century. And in January of 2001, days in the George W. Bush administration, a headline-grabbing report, that McCracken had participated in for the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was released. It cited new and stronger evidence that most of the warming observed over the last 50 years is attributable to human activities. I do have to pause in thinking about all of this to recall that in the 2000 election, you had Al Gore, the leading politician in the United States, advocating doing something about global warming, running against two Texas oil men. It seems that the vast sums of money that were put into the Bush-Cheney campaign, well, they, they were certainly associated with the oil industry. It was enough to get uh, George Bush within a half million votes of topping Al Gore's total. And in uh, the Electoral College, of course, thanks to some chicanery down in Florida, Bush became president. It should be noted that when he was running in 2000, George Bush made noise about taking global warming seriously and wanted to do something about it. Former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman was made head of Bush's EPA and frankly planned to go around the world telling people that the U.S. was going to go forward with a carbon tax. We would note that back in 2006, we had Governor Whitman on this program She'd written a book titled It's My Party Too. As late as perhaps the 1990s, Republican liberal was not inevitably an oxymoron. Ms. Merlin chimes in No, it's just a moron. But wouldn't you know it, Christine Todd Whitman got the rug pulled out from under her, thanks to Dick Cheney. And we're up against it on time here for this first segment, but I think uh, if we have a little bit of time in our second segment, we will air three minutes from that uh, chat. With Governor Whitman. But back then in the aughts, when we were doing this program, everybody was talking about peak oil. It was estimated that by about the year 2019, oil production in the U.S. would reach its peak, start to decline, and the natural economics of having fossil fuels be more expensive would then play into a transition to alternative fuels. It would be a natural course of events. Well, that didn't happen, unfortunately, and it didn't happen because of something we expressed doubt about on this program a long, long time ago and many times since, which was the idea that taking hydraulic fluids, injecting them into the strata down in the earth, and breaking through these strata levels into shale to release gas, natural gas that's, that's down there, might not be such a good idea. On the one hand, it is true that burning methane reduces something like half the CO2 that coal and oil does for reasons I'm a little unclear on. But from that standpoint, it's a good fuel source. The problem is if you bust a hole in geologic strata, and we raised this issue many years back, if you bust a hole through the earth and you start letting methane leak out, well, if you don't collect all of it, You're now releasing a gas into the atmosphere that has 20 times the potential for global warming, as does CO2. In part three of the frontline documentary, they show what happens when people go around to assess the amount of methane leakage at these various facilities, and let's just say it ain't a pretty story. There's so much more we need to say about this documentary and about the whole subject uh, in general, but we got to take a break. So let's do that. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Uh, stay tuned for continuing our talk on oil-related matters with Dan Bocker.